0: Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Um, Thank you for coming here. I'm glad to see all of you. Today is a day of mourning because nearly two millennia ago, man committed his greatest crime, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the prophet Zechariah wrote, When they look on me, on him whom they have peers, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Today is also a day of rejoicing. Because nearly two millennia ago, God accomplished his most marvelous work, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the Apostle Paul wrote, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this evening, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. May the faithful find renewing strength in the cross of Jesus, and may the lost find new life in the death of Christ. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord, you have said that when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. That's my prayer tonight, and that's our desire tonight. Draw us to you, to the Son of Man and the Son of God who was crucified for, for us in our sins to bring forgiveness to our souls, to purify our hearts and to restore us to you. Lord, you have shown great mercy to us in the cleansing blood of Christ Jesus. I pray that you will, you will instill into our hearts the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, grow our love and affection toward the Son of God and the Son of Man, we pray. Amen. Alright, let me begin with a simple observation and see if you agree with me. We associate many holidays and festivals with food specifically made for them. For example, we associate Thanksgiving with, with turkey, mashed potatoes, Melissa's perfect sweet potato casserole, and the broccoli Nicole made me eat last year at the Thanksgiving dinner here. Well, in China, we eat sticky rice for Dragon Ball Festival, Moon Cake for Mid-Autumn Festival, Tang Yuan, which is a little ball made with ses- sesame and sticky rice. We eat that for Chinese Lantern Festival. We eat particular foods for particular holidays. And now, these associations are not random. Well, they actually have... Oh, the, the food we eat usually carries some meanings related to the festival. We'll consider Chinese New Year. Why do people eat dumplings for Chinese New Year? Well, it's because uh, dumplings look like scicey. Well, you don't know what scicey is. Sis are basically a gold or silver nugget used as currency in ancient China. Well, why do we eat fish for Chinese New Year? Well, it's because the word fish sounds like surplus in Chinese. So it means we'll have, we'll have financial surplus this upcoming year. Well, why do we eat beef barbecue for Chinese New Year? Well, that doesn't have a profound meaning. It's just because I like eating meat and I'm the only child and I get to be spoiled for Chinese New Year. But you get my point. The point is this. The food we eat for special occasions usually has a profound meaning and interpretation. Well, now in the Christian church, there is also a meal associated with a special occasion. And that meal is the meal of communion or the Lord's Supper. And that special occasion is the cross or the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to be tonight. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 22. We'll be in verses 14 through 23. The gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 23, which you can find on page 882 of the Pew Bible. Again, Luke twenty-two, fourteen 14 to 23. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every single verse, because this is the word of God. And When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles were uh, with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Well, I titled the sermon, Communion, Cross, and Christ. And you're getting a classic Peter sermon because I want to draw your attention to three things from the text. First, the great expectation. Near the end of his life, Jesus was eagerly looking forward to what is to come, as our text clearly indicates. And secondly, the great salvation. The Lord's Supper is a graphic picture and representation of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation through him. So let's meditate upon the great salvation we have through the, through the lens of the Lord's Supper. And lastly, the great application. I have one essential application from the text for you, and I'm going to keep it a secret and I'll reveal it at the end. So that's your great expectation. So, three simple points for you tonight the great expectation, of the great salvation, and the great application. So, let's begin with point number one the great expectation. Begin with verse 15. Look at verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Two preliminary observations from the Greek that are somewhat lost in the translation. First of all, this verse should literally be translated from Greek as, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. With great longing, I have longed to share this meal with you. So this double affirmation repetition is intentionally used by Jesus to emphasize just how desirous he was for this solemn occasion. But more importantly, the second observation, the Greek word Jesus used here in verse 15 for desire, epithumia, is not the typical Greek word for desire. Every other use of this word in the New Testament, except once in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, this word is always translated negatively as lust, craving, covetousness, or passion. So obviously, Jesus knew no covetousness nor lust, as the perfect son of god but you and i know what it feels like to have a heart burn with passion or kindled with lust think about a time when you so craved something that you went to great lengths even into sin to have that craving fulfilled imagine that that's how strongly jesus desired to be with his disciple disciples here All that's to say, Jesus, just from these two simple words in the Greek, from verse 15, we can easily see just the great expectation in Jesus' heart for this special occasion. Now, what exactly is Jesus eagerly looking forward to? What are his expectations? Well, according to verses 14 through 18, there are three. So I'll name three. Great expectation number one. Jesus' eagerness to eat Passover with his disciples. Great expectation, number one. Jesus' eagerness to eat the Passover with his disciples. Verse 15. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This should make very little sense to you. I distinctively remember the last meal I had with my family before I left China for Cornell. I was dreading it, avoiding it. I was by no means Looking forward to it. For 18 years, I've almost had eaten every dinner with my family. Knowing it was the last meal with them in a long time, I was sad and I was distressed. So why did Jesus look forward to, to it, to this meal, knowing that this would be the last time he would eat with his disciples in a very, very long time? Well, the reason is found in the gospel according to John. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that this, uh, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What well, Jesus knew the hour has come, the hour to depart from this world, to leave his disciples and disciples he loved, cared for, trained, and walked with for three and a half years. But he loved them. And because of the great love, he had for them. He looked forward to the meal with great eager expectation. He loved his disciples because of who they are. Well, we are his brothers. Matthew 12:49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, "Here are my brother, Here are my mother and my brothers." And Hebrews 2:11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Well, we are his children. Matthew 11:25. 25. And at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. I revealed them to little children. And John thirteen, thirty-three, little children, yet a little while I am with you. We're also his bride. Ephesians 5 25. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. If Christ loved his disciples or the church as his brothers, his children, and his, his bride, then this meal he is sharing with his disciples here is nothing other than a family meal. Passover was supposed to be a meal with family in the Old Testament. And Jesus here is saying, the disciples, these guys, we are his family, his loved ones. So he eagerly desires to share this meal with them. Now, a simple application for you. Brothers and sisters, when you come to the table of the Lord's Supper, do you have an eager desire and longing in the heart? Do you crave it like the Lord Jesus craves it? Or do you just go through the motion with an unfeeling or unaffected heart? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this Sunday. So I pray that there will be such a longing in your heart that reflects Christ's longing for you. Such a love for Christ that ever so faintly reflects Christ's love for his church. Now, there's another reason why Christ earnestly desired to share this meal with the disciples. And that is expectation, great expectation number two. Jesus' eagerness to bring God's kingdom to consummation. Expectation number two. Jesus' eagerness to bring God's kingdom to consummation. Back to verse 15. Verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Why? Verse 16. For, that's the key word. The reason is, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There is a small textual variation in this verse, but we can be sure that the Greek could at least be literally translated. For I tell you that never, not will I eat it. So in verse 13, Jesus is using the double uh, positives to declare his desires, how desirous he was to be with his disciples. In verse 16, Jesus used the double negatives to highlight his intention or expectation. What is his expectation? For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is probably the hardest verse to interpret and understand in this passage. And there's some debate about the true meaning of this verse, because it is not specific enough. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is not, someone, this is not like someone saying to you, it's, uh, it's 8.35 now and it's a little chilly outside. You clearly understand it refers to time and to weather. But the two uses of it in this verse are not clear in the context. Each it in verse 16 has at least two possible interpretations. The first it, I will not eat it, that could mean the Passover, because the noun that immediately precedes it is Passover. So grammatical context seems to suggest that Jesus is saying he will not eat Passover until a certain time. Or it could mean food in general, or more specifically, a Passover-like celebratory meal. And the second it, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, could mean his death and resurrection in the immediate future or the eternal consummation Of the kingdom. Because the phrase the kingdom of God in Luke could mean both the current state of God's kingdom on earth or the eternal state of God's kingdom in heaven. So, what does this verse actually mean? What is Jesus actually saying in verse 16? I claim what Jesus meant in verse 16 is I will not eat such a Passover like celebratory meal until the future eternal consummation of the kingdom of God. Why? Well, the reason is pretty simple. It's because verse 16 is clearly parallel to verse 18, which is much more specific and clear. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Everything is spelled out in verse 18. There is no it, whatever. There is just everything's so clear. Jesus will not celebrate with wine until the eternal kingdom comes. And if you look down further to verses 29 and 30, Jesus said to his disciples, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is clearly referring to the future consummated kingdom where Jesus will sit and dine with his disciples. All that's to say, Jesus is looking forward to this meal, because this is the last celebratory meal he will share with his disciples before that glorious eternal day. By eagerly setting his heart upon this particular meal, Jesus is earnestly desiring the next meal in heaven with all his children at the marriage supper of the Lamb. By telling his disciples that he will not eat of such a meal anymore, he is promising them another day. Another day in the future, on which he will bring God's kingdom to them, gather all his beloved children, and dwell with them in perfect joy and peace forever. Revelation nineteen seven. That's the day Jesus is looking forward to. The saints in heaven cry out, Let us rejoice and exalt and give, give him the glory. For the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for us, and now he is eagerly waiting for all of us to join him in eternal life and everlasting joy. Great expectation number 3, Jesus' eagerness to suffer. Great expectation number 3, Jesus' eagerness to suffer. Verse 14. And when the hour came, well, what hour? Well, this is a very common phrase in the gospel of John referring to the hour of his suffering and death. And there's no doubt that Luke uses the phrase here in the exact same way because Jesus continues in verse 15. Again, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus is looking forward to his suffering in this last hour. However, Jesus actually has been pointing us to his crucifixion throughout his ministry. For three times he prophesied his death to his disciples, he said in Mark ten forty-five, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give him his life as a ransom for many. And if we go back to further, back to, 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 to the old testament, the death of Christ has been announced all throughout. You know Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You know Psalm 22. Matthew, read my mind. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you you forsaken me? You know Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In fact, the death of Christ has been set even before time began. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and in him, We have redemption through his blood. The author of Hebrews also calls the suffering of Christ the blood of the eternal covenant. All that's to say, the death of Jesus Christ is the focal point of the entire Bible and the entire human history. And that is why Jesus could say in verse 22, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation and the focal point of the entire history of redemption. Now then, question for you. Is the cross of Jesus Christ the focal point and the foundation of your life? If it is not, then I argue that it should be. Because because of the great salvation we now can obtain through his suffering. So now, point number two, the great salvation. 1689, London Baptist Confession, chapter 30, on the Lord's Supper, paragraph 7. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, not yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. In other words, Christ is really present with us at the Lord's Supper, and we are spiritually feasting upon him and all the benefits we receive in and through his death. Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So let's now spend some time considering the various benefits we receive from our great Savior. Benefit number one, Jesus is the great propitiation. Jesus is the great propitiation. Even though it only appears twice in the entire New Testament, the word propitiation is a very, very important word that every Christian should be familiar with because it is absolutely essential to our understanding of the work of Christ on the cross. It is a word that reaches the very heart of the gospel. And the word that safeguards us from a deficient view of the cross. And I would venture to say that the gospel will be no good news without propitiation. And so what does this important word mean? Propitiation simply means the turning away of the wrath of God. Appeasing the burning fury of the Almighty and satisfying the anger of God against sinners. And Jesus and Jesus alone is our sufficient propitiation before God. Well, where do I see that from the text? Well, I see it from one word, Passover. Passover is all about death, wrath, and deliverance. The detailed account of which can be found in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. For 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, embittered by their oppressors they cried out to the Lord for many generations, and God heard their plea for deliverance. So Moses was sent forth as God's prophet and deliverer, demanding Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let his people go. However, Pharaoh refused to listen to the divine command, so God's fury was kindled against the whole land, and he was set to slaughter all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. But God, who was gracious to his own people, commanded Moses that if each family sets apart a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, slaughters it, dips a bunch of hyssop in its blood, and touches the door post with the blood, then when the destroyer angels come to, to the land of Egypt to execute God's burning wrath on the Egyptian firstborn, they will see the blood of the Passover lamb, and they will turn away from the house. And therefore, Passover is all about wrath, death, and the propitiation, and the job of the, the Passover lamb is to turn away and appease God's burning anger towards sinners for their sins and liberate God's people from their bondage. Now, with all that Old Testament background most of you are familiar with, we see Paul writes in First Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed at the passover meal in luke 22 in our text jesus used two essential elements in the passover meal to demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of the passover lamb the bread that symbolizes the, his broken body on the cross and the wine that symbolizes his shed blood for sinners because you and i have sinned the perfectly holy and righteous god is immensely displeased with us, and we're nothing short of sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're quick to be displeased with the displeasure of God, and we're quick to be angry at God's anger. Well, which sounds just savage and civilized to our ears. The anger of God is the one heresy the modern man cannot tolerate. But let's not be too quick to judge, because we are righteously angry all the time. When justice is perverted, when innocent blood is shed, when God's name is blasphemed, we are angry, and rightly so, because these things are wrong, and our anger is just and justified. Now, if Maya's anger towards sin is justified, and our anger is often mingled with weakness, imperfections, and sins, how much more is the anger of God justified, who knows no evil and darkness? We do not have a morally indifferent god we do not have a morally apathetic god who feels no sense of right and wrong and no need of disciplining evil and sin our god is rightly infuriated by man's sins the sins we have all committed against our creator god and that is exactly where the cross of jesus christ comes in on the bloody roman cross he did not just suffer an excruciating and and suffocating bodily pain. He was the shield that kept us from the arrows of God's indignation. The cross was lifted up between heaven and earth. It It stood as a refuge for our souls between the holy God and us sinful men. Solely because Jesus Christ is our propitiation, who absorbed, endured, and appeased all of God's anger toward us. Well, therefore, when God looks upon us, his ever ailing and backsliding children, there is no wrath or fury, but only fullness of kind, full of kindness, grace and patience. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's one of the two uses of the word propitiation that's closely related to the love of God to His children, and that's to say, because of the cross, now God's anger does not demonstrate His hatred toward us. In Christ Jesus, only magnifies His steadfast love and mercy upon us. And that's benefit number one: Christ is our great propitiation. Benefit number two: Jesus is the great substitution. Jesus is the great substitution. This is evident from verse nineteen: "This is My body." Which is given for you. And verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In the Greek, the, the preposition here is hooper, which is which if followed by a genitive case, is better translated as on behalf of, as a representative of, or in one's place. In other words, Jesus is saying here to his disciples: I will suffer death on the cross, have my body own body broken, my own blood blood shed in your place as your substitute for your eternal good. Christ Jesus is our great substitution. Well, the concept of karma is gaining great popularity in recent years. Someone you do not like at work just got demoted or fired, better, that's karma. Someone wronged you, just got exposed, that's karma. If well, someone did not listen to your advice and got into trouble, well, that's karma. Karma simply means bad things happen to bad people. Well, let's, let's think about the concept of karma for a moment. On one hand, it is actually a pretty accurate reflection of some aspect of the biblical principle of justice. Of Galatians 6-7, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well now, this is actually not good news for us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Death in the body and death in the soul. Death on earth and death in hell. Therefore, even though karma in some sense reflects the biblical concept of justice well, well, even though sometimes we secretly wish karma fall upon someone we dislike. It is a hopeless and depressing doctrine, a doctrine that gives no hope of salvation. But we need not fear because karma is not a biblical concept and it's not biblical precisely because it allows no substitution. Karma says your sins will always come back to haunt you, What about the beauty of the gospel or the cross is that we ourselves have sinned, sinned against the holy God, but Christ Jesus stood in our place to suffer. He took upon himself our iniquities and offenses against God, paid the death penalty we deserved, and cleared the infinite debt we owe God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us 2 Corinthians 5:21 For our sake he made him who uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God In the incarnation Christ Jesus identified with sinners By becoming like them in their nature. But in the crucifixion, Christ Jesus identified with sinners in a most marvelous, incredible, and unimaginable way. He became sin for us. He was forsaken for us. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. And that's the essence of the gospel and the very heart of the Christian faith. Well, Calvin uh, writes, not only was the body of Christ given up as a prize of redemption, but there was a greater and more excellent prize that he bore in his soul, the tortures of condemned and ruined man. So next time someone asks you what the gospel is, think these three words, penal substitutionary atonement. Using layman's term, Penal substitutionary atonement simply means you and I have sinned against the holy God. We deserve to be punished by death. But Christ bore our sins and died on the cross so that we might be forgiven and declared right before God. And that's the second benefit we receive from the cross. Jesus is our great substitution. Benefit number three. Jesus is our great ratification. Jesus is the great Ratification. Another fancy word, ratification, simply means the formal establishment or validation of a, an agreement, a contract, treaty, or in our case, a covenant. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Those of you who regularly sit under the preaching of this pulpit should not be unfamiliar with the concept of Covenants, though almost obsolete in our day, covenant was a crucial part of the lives in, in the uh, people's lives in the Bible. A covenant is a solemnly binding agreement with promises between two parties to establish a relationship. Marriage is a covenant between between husbands and wives. Church membership is a covenant between believers and local churches. Our salvation is based on a Covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And again, covenant is a solemnly binding agreement to establish a relationship. And isn't a right relation with God what we desperately need? Well, you see, we you and I, we were all created and in fashioned in God's image and according to his likeness, which simply means we are made to be his most beloved children, his treasured possession in his eyes, enjoying an intimate communion and fellowship with God forever. But because of our sin, we're cut off from God and cast into endless misery and pain. We're made for communion with God, but now we have lost it all. And that's why covenant is what we need. Covenant establishes and restores relationships. A covenant between the holy God and sinful man is the only way to restore man's ruined relationship with God. Covenant is your way back to God, the God of light and life. And now, a covenant is never formally established or ratified without blood. It's just like the contract is never put into effect until you sign your signature. So covenants are not formally established until the shedding of the blood. Hebrews 9:16. For where a covenant is involved, The death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, if Jesus did not truly die on the cross, not only will there be no forgiveness of sin, no propitiation of wrath, and no purification for our souls, but more importantly, we will not be brought into a covenantal relationship with God. And not being in a covenantal relationship with God, mind you, is simply eternal condemnation, death, and misery. But praise be to God. Christ did pour out his blood on the cross. He did establish a new covenant with us in his blood. And we are now his children, the children of God rightful heirs of every inheritance God prepared for us in the kingdom of heaven. Well, therefore, in the new covenant, we'll all grow in holiness, we'll all enjoy communion with the God of life, we'll all know him, we'll all be forgiven, and sin shall be found no more. Brothers and sisters, all these blessings, all the blessings of the new covenant come to you only through the blood of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. So just to summarize, before Jesus was arrested, he revealed himself to his disciples one last time as our great propitiation, who turns away the wrath of God, our great substitution, who bore our sins and death on our behalf, on our great ratification, who brings forth all the blessings of the new covenant to us. And that is the great salvation we have freely received from our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So now let's conclude. With point number three, the great application. The great application. Before we get into the great application, I have a minor application for you. Because because our text is about the Lord's Supper, and is very applicable to our church at the present time, let's first consider the question, who are the rightful participants of the Lord's Supper? First of all, if this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood, if Jesus really is our great ratification, then that simply means only members of the new covenant could take and eat from the Lord's table. And that is those who have repented of their sins and trusted in the finished work of Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Paul wrote first in 1 Corinthians 11:27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Unbelievers cannot partake in the Lord's Supper. All of you would agree with me, nothing controversial here. But there is a little more. If the Lord's Supper is a family meal, then only those who belong to the family could come sit at the table. If the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal, well then, only those who have been properly inducted into the new covenant could take and eat from the table. And what is the ordinance that signifies our entry or induction into the New Covenant? Uh, The answer is baptism. 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 29, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him. So baptism is a sign of our fellowship with God. And that's to say, baptism symbolizes our adoption into God's family, and the Lord's Supper symbolizes our continuation in God's family. And that means the rightful participants of the Lord's Supper are not just members of the New Covenant. It is the baptized members of the New Covenant. You are born into the family first, and then you sit at the the dinner table. So in the same way, we are baptized first, And then we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's talk a little more if you have more questions and concerns, because I want to come to our great application. It is in verse 19. Look at verse 19. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So your great application is two words. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Jesus. Let me break it down for you. First of all, why is there a need for us to remember Jesus? Well, we must remember Jesus because we, have, we all have wandering hearts. Uh, we all have wondering hearts that often forget Jesus, ignore Jesus, and take little interest in Jesus. We love stuffing our hearts with other affections, loves, and entertainments. We must remember Jesus also because it is the best way to endure suffering and remain patient and faithful in affliction, Well, in the midst of suffering and trials, it is so tempting to, fi- to be fixated on temporal and circumstantial things. Your ailing bodies, your, your declining minds, your emotional distress, your career disappointments. These things are like magnets drawing and occupying our minds and our hearts. We'll drown very soon in the afflictions of this life if we do not remember Jesus. It's, it's like a tiny, we're like tiny boats on the stormy sea. Everything in life is ready to overthrow us. But remembering Jesus Christ is our haven. No matter how great and mighty the tempest, our hope and our sweet Savior still abides in us and we in him. We need to remember Jesus because it is the best way to endure suffering and affliction. Now, what should we remember about Jesus? Well, hopefully you already have the answer from all that we have seen tonight. Remember how eager Jesus was to walk with his disciples, his brothers, his children, and bride. Remember how eager Jesus was to suffer to bring us salvation. Remember how Jesus stood in our place and laid down his life for you and for me. Remember how much Jesus endured, the shame and mockery of man and the anger and wrath of God. Remember how Jesus suffered with joy, the joy that was set before him, the joy of seeing many come to new life Through him 20 years ago when my great-grandma was drawn near the end of her life her mind was was already gone And there was only one thing she could remember And that was my dad the grandson she raised and loved and she would mumble his name all the time That's the only thing she remembers So let's also remember our Lord Jesus in such a way that when everything else is lost when we could not remember anything else in this life May we still hold dearly in our hearts the Lord Jesus. Now, lastly, last thing, how do we remember Jesus? How do we do that? Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus specifically instituted a supper for this purpose. So come to the table to remember Jesus. What else? Well, Ian Murray is a well known Christian historian and biography. He wrote a book called The Forgotten Spurgeon. People are forgetting about Spurgeon. Sounds crazy, but people are forgetting Spurgeon, but what did Ian Murray do? Well, he wrote a book about for, the forgotten Spurgeon. Now, there's a book written about the forgotten Jesus, and is sitting quietly in your lap, behind every pew, on all your study desk. So pick up and read, I remember Jesus. Find someone, what, what else? When I forgot Jesus, I needed another brother to remind me, remember Jesus. So, Find someone in this church you know and love and encourage them to remember Jesus because they need your reminder so that they will remember Jesus. As Jesus remembers us all our days, may this congregation never lack the remembrance of Jesus in our midst. This is my body, which is given for you. The cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray lord call our minds to to the cross of christ the cross on which he shed his blood broke his body for our sins for the good of our eternal souls i simply pray lord that you will engrave his name upon our hearts not only on this day the day on which he was crucified two millennia ago But all the days of our lives. Because to remember Jesus is the safest, the sweetest, and the most joyful haven of our lives. When we find uh, rest and peace in the cross of Christ Jesus. Help us to cling to him, uh, we pray. Uh, Lord, uh, draw our hearts to to Christ. uh, The Savior, uh, the Passover Lamb, uh, the Prophet, uh, the Priest, and the King of our lives, we pray. Amen.